everyone, and welcome to Functional Fertility, the podcast designed to demystify your hormones, up-level your lifestyle, and supercharge your fertility potential. Minerals are a really huge foundation just in how our cells create energy. So when we think about minerals in relation to how they're supporting fertility, we can really talk about how they support hormone balance on a wide variety of levels. I'm your host, Dr. Kalia Waddles, and today we're talking all about minerals for reproductive health with the fertility dietitian, Brooke Boscovich. Brooke is a registered dietitian, a functional and integrative practitioner, and creator of the Master Your Fertility program. She takes a deeper look at hormone balance, digestive wellness, and nutrient status to support overall health and redirect the body's focus to reproductive function. Her approach helps women with irregular cycles, PCOS, unexplained infertility, endometriosis, and other fertility struggles to regulate their cycles and take home healthy babies. We're in for a treasure trove of nutritional gems in today's conversation. Welcome to the show, Brooke. Thank you so much for having me, Kalia. I'm happy to be here. Whenever we have podcast guests on, I say, what are you really into learning about right now? What are you feeling excited about? And you said minerals, which made me feel so excited. So I wanted to start out our episode by just taking a 30,000 foot view. Will you tell us overall, what are some important ways that mineral status can impact fertility? Yeah, I mean, minerals are a really huge foundation just in how our cells create energy. So when we think about minerals in relation to how they're supporting fertility, we can really talk about how they support hormone balance on a wide variety of levels. So for instance, estrogen and progesterone balance is actually heavily influenced by the balance of minerals like copper and zinc. So um, something to note when talking about minerals is that they all kind of work in teams. So mineral balance is really important as well as overall mineral status as a whole. So estrogen and progesterone balance are definitely influenced by minerals. Our thyroid hormone and how it's used is actually influenced by minerals as well. And that's really important in just growth and development of cells. Um, and our insulin response is actually influenced by mineral balance too, specifically calcium and magnesium play a pretty big role as to how our cells are able to respond to insulin, therefore influencing what's happening with blood sugar regulation, which of course is really important for overall hormone balance and a variety of ways for fertility too. So really like minerals as a whole, think of energy. And since fertility is such an energy intensive process, they're really important. And they're really important at all those kind of intricate pieces to the fertility puzzle that we talk about as far as hormone balance goes. And even when we take a, a step back and talk about things like supporting our natural detox pathways, and even how that DNA is being programmed, minerals are always involved there as well too. You just listed so many ways that mineral status can impact fertility. So I'm really glad we're talking about it. This is important. And I'm hearing this theme of balance emerge, balance minerals, hormone balance. So I think that's an important distinction. And I'm glad you did that right at the outset in the intro of our episode. 
we may all be wondering, okay, minerals are clearly so important and we're going to get into some details, but do you have a favorite method for globally assessing mineral status for those who might want to measure? One of my favorite ways to test minerals is really with what's called an HTMA or a hair tissue mineral analysis test. And it's literally taking a sample of hair off your head Um, And the reason that I like that type of testing is because it allows us to look at what's happening inside the cells as far as what's going on with minerals. So um, that is helpful because it's inside the cell and the majority of our, our minerals are actually inside the cell versus outside of our cells. And it allows us to give a, a, um, a longer insight as to Um, what's been happening with minerals over a longer period of time. So it's about a three month period that we're looking at when we're looking at an HTMA panel versus when we're talking about blood and there are some minerals that we can look at in blood that can be helpful information, but we have to realize in analysis that majority of minerals are outside the cells when we're looking at blood. And that's really just a snapshot in time. So it's very variable um, um, when we're looking at blood alone. It doesn't mean we can't use blood as helpful tools. And there are certain minerals that we can look at inside like red blood cells in the blood. But overall, like HTMA is really a helpful test to give us that deeper look on what's happening inside the cell over a longer period of time. So it gives us um, more insight as to how how to help your individual mineral status and that balance of those minerals that I mentioned um, based on where you're currently at and how to help you reach your goals for fertility. Yeah. I imagine that you're doing some, some type of diet journal or dietary recall with your patients. And so you're seeing what they're eating. Do you find that sometimes you're actually surprised when you get testing back? Like maybe you thought someone was doing a great job in taking a certain mineral, but their testing doesn't show that. Or you thought, Ooh, I bet they're going to have some suboptimal levels, but then it actually looks pretty good on testing. Absolutely. Yeah, that definitely does happen. History plays a really big role as to what we're going to see as far as how mineral status is showing up in testing. And by history, I mean things like yo-yo dieting or restriction, or even how you've been adapting to or managing stress. And I mean, when I talk about stress, it can definitely be internal stress. So things like inflammation, um, that's going on at kind of a underlying basis or external stress, like relationship stress or work-life stress. Um, all of those types of stress can definitely play a role in, in how fast or slow we're using minerals. Um, blood sugar balance, for instance, if you are slightly insulin resistant, um, that can actually play a role in what's happening with insulin or with mineral status as well. Even if you're getting a really mineral rich diet in, um, we can see how those minerals are being used at more or less. Right. Okay. So I'm hearing some inflammation, insulin resistance, these things often going hand in hand. So let's say we don't actually have access to, to testing. You kind of just touched on this with the inflammation and the insulin resistance resistance piece, but are there any other signs or symptoms or parts of your patient's history that might make you wonder about their mineral sufficiency? Absolutely. The first thing 
that I'm asking all of my female clients is, you know, what's happening with your cycle. And, and we talk about, you know, every phase of the cycle and what's happening symptom wise. And we can actually pull out some, some symptoms that are related to some mineral imbalances in some, some form or another. So things like pain or even heavy flow, mood swings, headaches, I mean, those can be related to a variety of things, but oftentimes it's related to hormone balance. And, and before that, it can be related to mineral status and how we're able to create energy in order to make those hormones and support really how they're being used and metabolized, whether down anti-inflammatory pathways or more inflammatory in pathways that can potentially lead to symptoms or not. So I'm definitely thinking about minerals with period problems. Um, I'm definitely thinking about minerals. If there's no period at all, no ovulation happening, um, that's a definite sign of depletion. Um, I'm thinking about minerals. If there has been a history of dieting, um, or restriction as a whole, even if there's restricting of major food groups, and maybe there hasn't been a lot of either focus or know how to replace certain minerals that can potentially be lost or harder to get in a diet with, with elimination of certain food groups. Um, and, and then other things that are maybe more commonly thought of as nutrient deficiency symptoms could be hair fall, um, things like brittle nails, or even, um, thinning of, of like your eyebrows, um, and then like things like thyroid balance and blood sugar imbalance. If you know that, that those are, um, concerns that you have, then we're definitely thinking about minerals for those situations as well. As you describe all these connecting points between hormones and minerals, I can see why you're so excited about learning about this right now, because it's truly fascinating. And I'll just say, I've shared before how I went through my own journey of some um, nutrient malabsorption, and I was really struggling with my own minerals for a while. And I was noticing all of these things pop up like little white spots on my nails, also known as leukonychia, which can indicate zinc insufficiency. Um, I was getting some redness around my lips, which sometimes means you're not getting enough iron. And so I was displaying all of these classic low mineral symptoms and signs, and it was really a red flag for me to do some investigation. And I'm going to loop back to some of the reasons why I think I had these nutrient problems later because we love talking about gut health together. So stay tuned for that. I really want to take a moment here and dive into a mineral that I get tons of questions about. It's iron. Iron is a big one. So Brooke, will you talk to us a little bit about why iron particularly is so important for fertility? Yeah, it is a really crucial mineral for for basically cell growth and development. So that in itself is important for follicular development and um, before ovulation happens. And it's important once conception happens and all those rapid development or, or divide, division of cells starts happening. Um, it's even important for how we're building and shedding our lining um, because that is, I mean, that's cell growth and development as well. Um, so creating that cushy lining to kind of create that home for an embryo to implant is also, um, partially, um, due to what's happening with iron as well. And I mean, iron is also, I mean, I think most often thought of uh, as 
part of hemoglobin, which is helping, um, transport oxygen around the body. And, and so that is a big part of how it is involved in cellular growth and development. Um, but is also, um, used or yeah, used in the body for support of immune function and things like energy metabolism and even enzyme production. And even though that's not as big of a role for iron, those are really, really important pieces of what iron does. So if we're not getting enough or not able to use it and, and regulate iron appropriately, it can impact fertility in, in really a wide variety of ways. I'm so glad that you mentioned this delivery of oxygen. I've really been reading about this, how if we have chronically low oxygen, we create this almost hypoxia in the ovaries, very low oxygen status in the ovaries. And that can contribute to increased ovarian aging, which is a topic I've been just really excited to learn about lately. So I'm so glad you brought that piece into it. I don't think we talk about that very often and it's really important and fascinating Okay. So now we all want to know if we're iron sufficient, what's your strategy for testing iron? Yeah. So if we're doing an HTMA, we're getting insight to what's happening with iron balance there based on some other minerals, but typically, and I'm doing blood work for iron and I'm looking at things like ferritin and hemoglobin, as well as serum iron, and even the transport proteins that are involved with iron too. Um, something to think about with iron is that it is, it doesn't work alone. It, it's really needs nutrient buddies like copper and magnesium and vitamin A to be able to be used appropriately. So there's, we actually make iron in our body um, um, and we need it in our diet, but to be able to move it around appropriately and get it into hemoglobin to be able to move that oxygen around, we really need things like copper to be, um, to make it more successful and sufficient in how iron is used. So if we are looking at hemoglobin alone in a panel, we're really not getting the full picture and we can actually do more harm than good in supplementing say iron alone versus if we get more of these markers, we can get a fuller picture and see, you know, maybe you actually just need more copper and vitamin A um, and, and not iron, but you need those nutrient buddies to help iron move around better. Mm -hmm. So when you're doing your iron testing, you're, um, it sounds like you're almost always looking at things like copper simultaneously. If at all possible. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Okay. As we're thinking about iron, you, you mentioned that in large part, we have to get some iron from food. And I get this question all the time. What is the difference between heme iron and non-heme iron? Will you walk us through those differences? Yeah. So heme iron is only found in animal proteins and it is more bioavailable. So it's easier for our bodies to use in its natural form that is already in food. So basically we can absorb it at about four times the rate than we can non-heme iron. And non-heme iron is found in plants and it has a much lower absorption rate, but we can get benefits from both of them, absolutely. And the trick with non-heme iron is that you really want a vitamin C source to be able to boost absorption of it. Um, but we also have to remember that there's other compounds in plants that 
kind of fight with the absorption of iron at the same time. So that can be things like phytates or polyphenols. Um, so we can definitely get iron from plant food, but the most, the easiest way to get plenty of iron in our diet alone is with the heme iron or our animal, animal proteins being part of the puzzle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes good sense. So when you're working with patients and they really want to focus on plant sources, it sounds like you say, okay, let's combine with some sources of vitamin C to really maximize absorption. Is that typically how that conversation goes? We just do some food combining to really optimize that nutrient exposure. Certainly. Yeah, that's definitely supportive. And we want to try to um, limit um, calcium sources. If we're focusing on mainly non-heme iron or plant sources of iron too, um, because calcium can be another nutrient that can actually compete for absorption for iron and can actually decrease the amount of iron that we're able to get from, um, any source, but definitely the less bioavailable source, the non-heme iron. Mm -hmm. So when you're assembling your iron rich food source, all-star team, what are some of your favorite food sources of iron? Yeah. Um, oysters are a great one. Yeah. Uh, probably not one that's as often talked about, but <laughs> sardines, um, ground beef, and then our organ meats. So beef liver is definitely a very iron rich food as well. Um, so those are like rich, rich sources of iron. Like you're going to get iron from, you know, like your, your poultry as well, especially like your darker meat poultry, um, and other forms of beef as well. But those are some all-star iron rich foods. Mm -hmm. Brooke, what are your pro tips for, for eating those organ meats? <laughs> if, if we're, if we're feeling at all adverse to organ meats, do you have some suggestions? Definitely hide it. There's no harm in hiding it. I mean, have it in pate form, have it ground up, hide it in other ground meat sources, things like meatballs, meatloaf, um, soups, stews that have other ground meat in it too. And start small. Um, and it doesn't have to be beef liver either. Beef liver definitely has a stronger flavor. Chicken livers are also going to be rich in iron as well as copper. Um, and they're much milder and even duck livers can be an option too, which can be an easier introduction to some, some organ meats as well. And it's totally fine to just do a pate version too. Um, some people are into that. It's already pureed. It's like a dip. It has some cream in it, some other spices in it. Um, and it can jive better with the, those harder to palate flavors. If you haven't been exposed to organ meats before. All right. We've got our starter organ meats. We'll work our way up. That seems fair. I've even seen blends that you can buy that's like ground beef with some organ meats already in the mix. So you can make a sauce or you can make a, a patty. And that seems like a really smart way to go about it. Yes. I love those options that are coming out on, on the market. I think those are really great ways to experiment and start getting some more organ meats into your, into your life and, and beyond iron, like really mineral rich foods. So can, can check a lot of boxes if you're trying to boost minerals as a whole. Yeah. You already told us it's never just one mineral. We're thinking of mineral balance. So I think that's a good point on this topic of food sources. I would be interested to hear also some of your favorite food sources of copper, because it sounds like we really want to be aware of this relationship. 
Definitely. So copper is a mineral that is really important for basically pulling iron out of storage and mobilizing it to get it to where we need it to function. And so when you're thinking about copper rich foods in your diet, you're thinking about those organ meats again, but you're also thinking about things like citrus and shiitake mushrooms and even cacao powders and cashews um, are, are going to give you some more copper too. Copper is something that it's, it's a trace mineral. We don't need a ton of it, but getting some of these copper rich foods in can definitely boost your copper intake to help support that iron activity a little bit better. That's awesome. Is there any concern about eating food sources of iron and food sources of copper together or we do we want to eat them together? Or do you do you make specific recommendations about that? It's totally fine to eat them together and a lot of I mean some things like your organ meats are going to be already found in nature together as well. And you're going to get um, copper and things like oysters too, and, and fish and seafood as well that are also going to have some iron in them too. So yeah, yeah, totally fine to, to eat them together in that fashion. And even if you're considering an iron supplement, um, working with your medical provider, of course, but consider also supplementing some of those iron nutrient buddies like copper, um, because that, that can definitely help with how your body's using that iron, even in a supplement form too. Yeah. I've really, I've really seen, um, beef liver capsules increase in popularity recently. Is that something you're using or you're really emphasizing the the true food source, I would love to hear your perspective. <laughs> yeah, I'm always encouraging the whole food first, whole food source first as much as possible. But some people are have a really hard time with that and they experiment with it and they try it and it's just not realistic and sustainable. And if something is not realistic or sustainable, I'm like, okay, let's reevaluate. Let's see where else we can get that in. So sometimes it might be a, be a desiccated beef liver capsule not always. I mean, it depends on what their overall diet looks like. Maybe they're a huge fan of oysters or other fish and seafood. Maybe we can get some other good copper and iron rich foods in. Um, and then we don't necessarily have to use a capsule supplement, but I think it's an option. It's definitely an option that, um, can good quality ones can be safely, um, utilized depending on the whole picture. Well, as a huge oyster fan, I'm sighing a, a sigh of relief over here that I can focus on oysters for a while, maybe as I enter into my organ meat era. Uh, on this topic, before we move on from supplements, there are so many choices. There's mineral capsules and mineral drops for your water and all of these different things. Do you have a favorite or what are you using in your house? For iron specifically? Or, you know, or just a, a trace mineral product in general. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there have been phases where I've been using more like trace mineral drops in my water, but I am definitely something that I'm testing. I'm doing my HGMA and doing my blood testing and kind of reevaluating and seeing what I need. So it shifts based on that. Um, I definitely always have needed to supplement things like magnesium and really focus on like potassium rich foods. And sometimes I'm using a supplement for that potassium as well. There's some um, decent powders out there that are really potassium rich that are going to give you a much higher 
dose of potassium than we can get in food alone. So, um, I am using that as well. Um, um, salt is something I also need a lot of and, and specifically like a salt that hasn't been processed to a point to take other minerals out. So things like, um, a sea salt or, um, a salt like Redmond's real salt is a great brand. And you can actually see that it's pink and blue and white, even though it's finer ground, but it's a really, um, a, a mineralized salt, like it still has all the other minerals in it that we want it to have. And sodium is one of those minerals that is really important for overall mineral balance. And depending on how your body is adapting to stress and your stress levels, we can be using up sodium really quickly. And it is one that we definitely need to support overall mineral balance and, and, um, fertility in a variety of ways. So that's what I'm personally using right now. Magnesium supplement, potassium supplement, as well as just making sure I'm getting enough sodium and salt in, um, good quality forms. And right now, yeah, I like your experimenting with your data collection. That's really fun. My husband teases me that drinking electrolytes is my main hobby because I love <laughs> to try all the different electrolyte products and mineral products. And right now I'm using, this is new to me. Maybe everyone else knows about this, but this, these Soleil kits, it's like these gorgeous big salt crystals in this glass container and you fill it with water and you let it sit for 24 hours. And then every time I fill up my water or a couple of times a day, I'll put, I mean, it's like half a teaspoon of this solution into my drinking water. And someone said, oh, does it make it taste salty? And I said, no, but if round had a mouthfeel, that's what it tastes like to me. Like it just makes everything taste very smooth. Um, and I feel like it's really helping. I've been spending a lot of time in the sauna. So repleting some of those minerals, I think is really helping. Um, and it just makes me feel special to put this little solution in my water. That's so beautiful. Absolutely. That sounds like a lot of fun. That's definitely something I'll have to look into. Yes. Such a treat. I'll, I'll share more about that. Um, I oftentimes like to open up a little Q and a on my Instagram and a question came through a couple questions actually came through about iron that I thought I'll send your way. So the first question, um, they said, my iron supplement always makes me nauseous. And I hear from patients all the time that this is the case. What are your tips for navigating an iron supplement when you need it, but it makes you nauseous? Yeah. So consider the form that it is. So, um, iron bisglycinate can actually be gentler on your stomach and decrease nausea symptoms and, and even be less constipating than other forms. Like ferrous sulfate is a really commonly prescribed or easy to find iron supplement, but that form is actually a lot harder for our guts. Um, so definitely consider that and then make sure you're, you have food in your stomach too. I mean that some of us are just more sensitive to supplements as a whole. Um, and that can definitely decrease nausea as well. Yeah. I like the suggestion to use an iron bisglycinate. I think that helps a lot, helps a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I agree. I see a big shift in symptoms with that. And you mentioned constipation, iron can be constipating for some. And, and sometimes I, um, 
compensate for that with a little extra magnesium. So the mineral picture is coming full circle here. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. That's definitely a helpful tips um, and, and routine to, to do. If you are having more constipation with your iron supplement, consider that consider more magnesium that can help move things along for sure. We love our minerals. So that this brings me to our next question. Um, a podcast listener asked, how long should I focus on getting more minerals before I try to get pregnant? I thought that was a great question. Very good question. Yeah. I mean, there's never too long, right? You can, if you have six months to a year, take it, focus on your minerals. That's always supportive, but very minimum. I recommend like three to four months. And that just follows that whole journey of that follicle maturation, which is about 90 days. Um, and you're going to be really supporting your cells and the energy they're able to produce and those mineral balances that are impacting like those, the hormone balance and, um, how you're able to nourish your follicles over that time period, um, before ovulation occurs. And not only that, like you're supporting what's happening with how your lining is building and shedding and creating, um, a friendlier environment that is going to be oxygenated with plenty of iron and, and, um, support to create that really cushy environment for when you are ready to start trying. Love it. And I heard you say at the top of our episode that when you do your hair tissue mineral analysis, it looks at the status over about three months, right? So that makes sense to me that if you do your mineral status, your mineral repletion plan for three to four months, that might give you time to do a repeat test and make sure that you're getting where you want to be. Exactly. And that's a really helpful timeline to, for retesting. And then if you are starting to try to conceive at that time, you can fine tune things a little bit more, or if you happen to be pregnant within that four or five months time period, and we're doing a retest still really supportive as to how to support pregnancy moving forward as well. Awesome. Well, Brooke, you and I both love talking about gut health and there's such a natural link here between, you know, nutrient absorption and nutrition status in general and our gut health. So will you talk us through a little bit how our gut health impacts our ability to even absorb minerals like iron, which we've talked about? <laughs> totally. Yeah. Yeah. So we need basically appropriate enzyme production and acid production in the stomach to be able to start to break down food and be able to get those minerals and nutrients out of the food. So, um, excuse me, if you're not having an, an appropriate amount of stomach acid production to, to begin with, like that is going to be decreasing the amount of, of, of absorption that you're going to be able to get out of your food um, for minerals for sure. Um, and if you're having like sluggish gut, for instance, you're constipated, things are not moving through well. Um, that's definitely a sign that things are not going to be as efficiently used and absorbed. And even if you're going the other direction, if you're having a really quick transit time and things are not being fully formed, like that's a sign that there's definitely some dysregulation in the absorption stages of how you're getting things out of your food. So we definitely want to consider what's happening with gut health. Um, I mean, we can take it a step 
further and talk about like even the bacterial balance in the gut too, and how that can actually impact or change how we're able to digest and absorb the foods that we're eating too. But at a very kind of surface level, we're just thinking about, okay, am I having regular solid bowel movements and am I having any symptoms of low stomach acid um, to begin with? And that's a really good place to start as far as thinking about is my gut health impacting mineral status? Yeah. Let's, let's dive into some of the (laughs) symptoms of low stomach acid, because in the end to bring this full circle on my own nutrient insufficiency, I had low stomach acid and I was really struggling with, with all kinds of nutrients actually, but how do we know if we have adequate stomach acid without doing testing? Are there just some observations that we can make in our own body? Yeah. So, I mean, heartburn can actually be a symptom of low stomach acid. So we need enough acid to keep it in the stomach. Um, and when it's low, it is more likely to come up. And so that's probably one of the easiest symptoms to, you know, whether you have low stomach acid production, um, other things could be even like more frequent bloating or thinking about, um, basically how your stomach feels, are you getting like stomach aches really quickly or really frequently? Like, how are you feeling after you're eating? I mean, um, those things can be small signs, early signs, um, that you might want to be supporting your stomach acid production and digestion as a whole as well. Mm -hmm. Hopefully we're so body aware that we start to notice these things before you're like me and you have spots on your nails and you have tingling (laughs) in your hands and feet and all of these things that kind of make you reassess your stomach acid situation. What are some of your favorite ways to support acidity within the stomach? Yeah. So my first recommendation is always to try to eat in a rested state. So we have two states of our nervous system. And if we're in fight or flight mode, we're not ready to rest and digest our food and stomach acid production is going to be at a lower level. So take a breath, take a seat, take some time to sit and eat. And then in that time, really chew your food and eat slowly. Um, I mean, you don't have to be like a snail, but chewing your food really well is really, really helpful for stimulating what's happening with saliva production. And really it starts the whole process of digestion, um, which goes down to your stomach and starts acid production there as well. So chew your food well, take that time to eat. If you're having trouble, like thinking about how to get into that rest and digest stage at a time that you need to be eating, My recommendation is to, as you sit down, just focus on your breathing for like 10 breaths, just really slowly take an inhale, take that exhale, repeat 10 times. Like it takes less than a minute and it can make all of the difference as to what's going, what your pace of eating is going to be and what's happening with your nervous system state to help support that acid production. And then beyond that, we can talk about things like foods that can actually stimulate stomach acid production too. And bitter foods are really supportive here. So it can be things like apple cider vinegar. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean you have to actually like take a spoonful of apple cider vinegar, but you can use it in like a dressing. Um, or a dip of some kind for um, veggies. You can 
also think of foods like arugula or green tea that maybe you're going to sip alongside a meal. Um, things like artichoke even are really awesome bitter type foods to include in your meals um, to help with that stomach acid production too. Oh, I'm so glad you mentioned arugula. That's my favorite bitter green. And I'm just imagining this arugula salad with an apple cider vinegar dressing. And that's the perfect appetizer to help us get ready to digest. And I love this idea of sitting down and taking a few breaths before you start to eat. And I think when I had to go radical meal hygiene with myself, it was like, okay, sit down, light a candle, relax, smell the food, look at the food and really get ready to take that food in to nourish my body. So I think that's very wise advice. And probably one that we could all use to slow down a little bit. So Brooke, we're already visualizing ourselves in the kitchen, eating our bitter greens. So it's the perfect time for me to give you a kitchen challenge. Are you ready? I'm ready. <laughs> Your kitchen challenge is to make a mineral rich appetizer for a summer party. What are you making? Oh, goodness. So, I mean, it might depend on the crowd that is going to be attending this summer party, but one of two options here. So like a little meatball bite on a little cute little toothpick that's going to have your hidden liver organ meats in it. Super oh, mineral wow. rich, has a little bit of like a maybe a barbecue type sauce on it. So that would be option one. Option two would be some sort of play on like a, a sushi roll basically, but you could do like a cooked, maybe a shrimp and some like nori, um, like a nori sheet or somehow wrap that up with an avocado or a little drizzle of like some maybe sweet chili sauce or something like that. Super mineral rich nori in itself is really mineral rich. And then if you get a little bit of seafood in there um, and then avocado, I mean, who, who doesn't love avocado? <laughs> I know there are, there are people out there that don't, but um, I am a huge, huge fan of that and definitely going to give you a little mineral boost there as well. Okay. We're ready for our summer parties. I know my family members, if they're listening to this, every event I go to this summer, they're going to be like, Hmm, is she sneaking us organ meats? <laughs> okay. We maybe I'll need a little mineral boost. Uh, Brooke, I wanted to thank you so much for spending time with us today and teaching us all about minerals and sharing your love for this topic. It's just been such a pleasure to chat with you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm always happy to talk about minerals and fertility. We'll have to do it again sometime. To our listeners, thank you for being with us. Go get your mineral-rich beverage of choice. And thank you so much to the show's wonderful producer, Paola Martini. We can't wait to see you next time. Thanks, everyone. Did you love this episode and want to hear more? Head over to drkaliawaddles.com slash podcast where you can find more episodes on all things fertility.